Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from AltaSpeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening from a very pleasant South Dakota this evening. Welcome back. Is it good to be home? Yeah, you know what? Uh, the honeydew list didn't go away, unfortunately, but uh, back at it. All right. So we've got an exciting show planned and excited to be back in town and back into the studio where I uh, we had a situation. So I don't do this very often, but every once in a while, it's important to pull back the curtain and kind of turn the light inward for just a second. So... The main board in our Axia mix engine went out. And that is the that is the heart and soul of this studio. It's what powers the show. And it died. And so I sent the unit in for repair. And I got the invoice back this week. And the new main board that Telos is installing for us is going to cost me what $2,151.87. Now, I've been following Dame's, Dave Ramsey's advice on managing money since before I was, before it was called Dave Ramsey. Back then it was called mom and grandpa's way to do it. You live on less than you make. And so I have a plan for the rainy day. It's not a problem. And so our rainy day is here, but I have a plan. So it isn't a problem. So the backup broadcast system is in place and I'll write the check to fix the board out of my own money. And I set aside to run the studio. And so it's not a problem. And six months from now, this will just be a bad memory and I'll forget this ever happened. Right now though, it's a reminder to me. It's a reminder that this show is an investment. The time I spend away from my family to be at Summit, to be at Self, and coming up at Linux Fest Northwest in Seattle, I make those investments so that I can be in front of the movers and shakers and ask them questions and bring them onto the program and help deliver your feedback of the things that work, the things that don't work, and where we go from there. And it's an investment of Steve and I's time because we sit down here every week to answer questions. And this week, I was reminded that there are absolutely costs associated with that. So this isn't an ask for money. We don't ask for money. We're both blessed to earn good incomes from Linux and open source. If you want to, I mean, if you want to support us, then, you know, you can support AltaSpeed and you can support Red Hat because those are the companies that put food on our table. And we're very thankful to those entities and that they take care of us to the point that we're able to do this. But I thought I would use this as an opportunity to go over the rules of engagement. And they are simple and they are the following. So a phone call or hopping in mumble reigns supreme. At the time we do the show, that is the best time for us to answer your question. We can't help you fix your problem if we don't understand it. And so if your problem isn't clear, you don't provide enough information, it just doesn't make it onto the show because we can't help you with it. Second thing is, we get that asking you to join at exactly in the 57 minutes and 50 seconds that this show is live is a tough ask. So we have options available to you, but you have to take advantage of those. They are join us in the mumble room, live at asknoahshow.com, or send us a matrix message in the geek lab at chat.asknoahshow.com. Share your experience with us about Linux. What are the high points? What works well? What do we need to do for improvement? And then when you have a challenge, ask. We will help you. If we can't help you, We'll put it out there and somebody else will because with conversation comes change. I absolutely believe that's true, but that change comes by speaking up. So that's how you can help and support the show. That's how you can show that you appreciate what we do here. Call us, join Mumble, email live at asknoahshow.com or send us a matrix message in the geek lab at chat.asknoahshow.com. Steve, anything to add to that? No, I just think, well, I, I say no, and then I say other words. Uh, let's, let's stop that habit. Yeah, I just wanted to say that we do this to, to give back to the community, and I'll speak for myself here. I like answering questions. I like to be able to pass on the knowledge because I spend 
a good portion of my working week digging for information myself. And my job would be infinitely harder if people weren't out there trying and then putting out into the world what it was that they did that fixed their problem. So I try to do the same thing. So if you're not, if you're not asking, if you're not engaging with us, then I can't really, I mean, I could just talk, but I don't think that's particularly interesting. I think it's, it's better for everybody if people uh, join the conversation and it always, it always works out better when a plurality of opinions and points of view are involved in the conversation. So yeah, I just would put it out there. Please keep emailing in. Calling would be great. We love to have a, a conversation. That way we can have a back and forth and have a better chance of actually solving your problems. So you have the ways, we'll have them available to you in the show notes at uh, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Frustratingly enough, I see that there is a call. However, I don't know that our board is set up working properly. Can you hear us? Yeah. I'm really sorry about this. If you can hear me, I apologize, but the phones are not, uh, are not working. Um, and I'm sorry about that. But unfortunately, we just, there's only so much, the, the, the limitations of our uh, temporary board are a bit limiting. So, but in general, that's what we would ask. And that's why I'm going to write the check is so that we don't have to have those sorts of problems. But so call, email, chat.asknowashow.com. Those are the ways to get engaged. And we appreciate if you would do so. We appreciate you listening. So Steve, you had a pleasant experience with a home assistant this week, I understand. Yeah, I was doing, you know, the standard upgrades have been generally flawless for me. I, I haven't had to roll back an upgrade in a very long time, but I still do the due diligence and check the release notes. And I noticed something called, um, like there was a heading for NAS. And so I went and looked at that and they have finally enabled you to connect a network attached storage via Samba or NFS to your home assistant now. And uh, I tried it out with NFS and was pleasantly surprised. You can add a bunch of uh, network shares to your home assistant and then determine what type of information they're going to hold. And in my case, um, instead of having my backup reside on a tiny little NUC, it now goes to the NAS. And that worked pretty well. Uh, the only the only problem that I had was the dialogue doesn't do a very good job of telling you it's writing to the NAS. So it, you know, it says, oh, generating your backup, right? And then mm -hmm. uh, the pop-up disappears when it's done actually um, generating the zip file or the tar file, whatever it is. Um, but the dialogue just disappeared. And I was like, oh, well, it should be done. But I went and looked in the backup spot, like in Home Assistant, and it's not there. And I went to the NAS and the NAS didn't have anything. And what happened was I, so I tried to start the backup again and it said, you can't, something's already got a lock there. So I just waited a while and it turns out that, um, they're not doing a very good job surfacing. What it was transferring it from my local NUC to the NFS share. So I think I, my summation, that's the wrong word. My thought is that it does the backup in a temporary directory first and then pushes it over to the NAS based on uh, the fact that the, the backup job said it was done, but I couldn't find it on the NAS. But it ended up showing up there and uh, I was pretty happy about that. I was happy to see that feature implemented. And it's been a while since there was something that I was like, hey, I should let people know about this because this actually might be useful to people for various reasons. Absolutely. That's really cool. Do you have any speculation as to why they didn't have it available uh, earlier? I don't know. I, I would think that there's some competing priorities there. The The community had stepped up and especially if you had like Google Drive or something like that, there was a community. I, I'm not sure if it was an integration or whether it was a hack, um, you know, the Home Assistant um, store, which is just called Hacks. Um, that allowed you to back up to cloud locations. And I never bothered with it because I didn't have any of those cloud locations. So I don't know if they just thought it wasn't a high priority or whether they were working on other things, but uh, yeah, it's in there now and I'm happy. Hey, Steve, in the time that you were able to explain the home assistant thing, I was able to fix the phone. So if that guy wants to call back, I can get you on the air now. Isn't that impressive? I'm a troubleshooter on the fly. This is live Very radio, nice. folks. 855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. 
com. You ready to do some feedback, Steve? Absolutely. All right. So our first email comes in from uh, Emmanuel. Emmanuel says, hello and greetings. I need some help with logging into a server using key pairs. I'm a newbie. I generated a key pair on my desktop and copied it, copied the public key to the server, etc. And I'm able to log in using SSH my key pairs. Now I want to do the same for my laptop. How do I repeat the process after generating a new keypad on my laptop and going through the same procedure without overwriting the prior setup for the desktop? Can you please guide me through the proper commands to use? How will the server remember the different public key pairs? Thank you, Emmanuel. So it's a great question, Emmanuel. So the most straightforward answer to your question is you'll run the SSH key gen command again on the second machine and you'll take the public key from that second machine that you generated and you'll add that not replace, you'll add that to your dot uh, authorized key file in the home directory of the user on the server in which you want the key to be there. So on every Linux box, you'll go, well, not every Linux box, most Linux boxes, you'll go to slash home slash your username slash dot SSH. And inside of there, you'll see an authorized underscore keys file. Open that file and simply paste the public key for the new computer in on a new line. Now, here are some things to consider with that. The first thing to consider is you never, ever, 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 ever want to share key pairs. So you don't want to have an SSH key that you use on more than one machine. In fact, you should roll your key pairs. If you, if you blow away your laptop and you start a new and you reinstall your operating system, really, you should delete those key pairs and you should get a new one. Why? Because when you sit down at that conference that you weren't thinking about and you walked away for a few seconds, unbeknownst to you, somebody plugged into your laptop and copied your private key file out. You didn't even know they did it, but they have a copy of it now. And so there is an inherent insecurity in having one file that just never changes and gives you persistent access to a machine. The second thing, the second route you can go is you can use some sort of an, of an, of an SSH bouncer of sorts. So you can use something like Gravitational Teleport, which you put Gravitational Teleport's key on all the servers, and then you log into Gravitational Teleport and do all your work from there. And then it doesn't matter if you're logging in from your laptop or your desktop, you're logging into Gravitational Teleport, and the Gravitational Teleport is using the stored SSH keys to log you in elsewhere. The third thing is you can do what I do, which is use a hardware token. So a hardware token like a solo key or, or, a, or a, um, a Yuba key is a hardware token that never gives up the private key. So essentially the way it works is instead of storing the private key on a readable location, it's, it stores it in a write-only memory slot on the key with no read access. And so when you want to sign a transaction, what happens is the asking party feeds garbage data into the YubiKey. The YubiKey signs the garbage data with the private key and sends the garbage data back. Now, since we know what the public key is, we can reverse the process and we can look and say, yep, that is who he says he is, let him in. The nice thing about that is the hardware token never gives up the private key. So because of that, there is no key to copy, there is no key to extract, there is no key to to, uh, to, to, to be exposed. And so when we can terminate people at AltaSpeed, as long as we ask them for their hardware key and they hand it back, there's no need to go through and remove them all from all of these servers. So the nice thing about that is I've gone through three, four, five laptops now. All I do is take my YubiKey and plug it into the new laptop. And oh, by the way, because I wear it around my neck, the, the, the inherent advantage there is that I can get to it from anywhere. I can just sit down at a new computer and I just configure my PKCS11 provider to, to look at the YubiKey instead of uh, the, or, or in addition to the SSH key files located in my home directory and Bob's my uncle, I can get into servers. So I would highly recommend you do that. Now, Steve, you have experience with a slightly different approach. That is to say you have used um, LDAP storing the SS key, SSH key privately uh, inside of something like FreeIPA. Yeah, LDAP has the ability to issue, like to, to put forward the key on your behalf. And what that allows you to do is centrally manage an SSH key. And because the servers have been instructed to trust the LDAP server, they will trust the SSH key. I mean, I'm being a little bit simplistic, but that's essentially the mechanism. And so what that allows you to do is you upload a, a key to the free IPA server or regular LDAP can do it. Um, I think Active Directory can be finagled into doing this as well, uh, but it's a little more tricky. And anyways, when you go to log into the to the server, uh, you your free IPA LDAP whatever 
when it's verified, whether you have a, a Kerberos ticket or anything else, what will happen is the SSH key then gets forwarded on your behalf to the, pardon me, to the server in question and you get in. So uh, that's the method that I tend to use if I've got a lot of servers to log into um, and there are servers that I control. Uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up was that we talked about copying servers, uh, keys around. There's a utility called ssh-copy-id, yeah. which does this for you. So you don't have to worry about which file to go put it in or anything like that. Um, the way that it works is it establishes an SSH connection for, for you and prompts you for your password the first time. So it prompts you for the password on the server the first time. And given the correct password, it then goes and puts your key in the correct location and then closes the connection. So the next time that you log in, you can just log in with your SSH key. So I'm going to amend what you said just a little bit. That is to say, you should absolutely know where those SSH keys are going and you should understand what that process does of copying a public key um, from into a direction because it'll help you troubleshoot if something isn't working. You can go into the public or into the authorized key file and you can see if the key is being copied. Additionally, you can go through and remove it back out. Once you understand that you should never do it that way. You should do it Steve's way. It's kind of like HTML. You should look at, you should open it up and look at it enough that you understand how to do that stuff by hand. And then if you, unless you're a masochist and don't value your time, you should never actually do any of that by hand. Is that a fair amendment? Yep. I, 100% endorse that. All right. Our second email comes in from Ahmed. Ahmed writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Thank you for the great show. I've been a listener since episode uno, and I've benefited from a lot of the valuable info and the advice that you guys provide. I wanted to share my experience with the FOSS file sharing app that I recently tested. It's called Pideo, and you can learn more at Pideo.com. I've been using Nextcloud for five years, and I love it, except for the fact that it's very slow. No matter how much power and resources I give it, it still runs very slow compared to C-File, for example, which, by the way, I've also tried for a year and found it to be lacking and not so pleasant to maintain. Pideo, on the other hand, is very fast and more modern. It has been completely rewritten in Go using the microservices module, which allowed it to run extremely fast, uh, extremely faster than its legacy PHP code base. One of the most amazing features Pideo has is the ability to support S3 compatible storage backend as opposed to the flat file system layout. It will default to block storage rather than a plain file folder method that Nextcloud still uses. I've tested this extensively for a month using min.io as an S3 storage backend. It'll work flawlessly and blazingly fast. I also love the fact that you can plug and unplug storage backends on the fly with different backends to create different types of data. For example, workspaces, thumbnails, versioning, etc. This is great if you want to reduce your $3 bill by having less frequent access to data on a local file system. Pideo is well-documented, and they have easy-to-follow distro-specific step-by-step guides on how to self-host and the free community edition. Speaking of self-hosting, I've recently built a website for listing Libra and self-hosted projects. It lists over 1,200 projects, and each project page shows a guide, source code, demo links, and hopefully receives some community reviews and discussion. I've been using it a lot myself to look up projects and details on how on, uh, to get ideas on what to self-host next. It's called Libra Self-Hosted. and can be found at LibraSelfHosted.com. Thanks, and keep the great show. Amen. So, Steve, what do you think of Pideo, and is there room for Pideo in your life? Not mine, personally. Um, I took a look into it. It's got one of those... Um, I would think it's dual license. I'm not exactly sure, but it's definitely one of those um, free-for-home-use type type situations as opposed to just being flat out open source and free. Um, I think that there's room in the market for it, for sure. Obviously, I would I would be curious to find out what made Nextcloud slow. We don't really know whether it was. Is it the sync? Is it the web UI? Is it the client? What exactly was slow on that? Um, that's kind of my curiosity here. I think it's interesting that they this uh, writer has taken it upon himself to make such a, an extensive list of the uh, possible self-hosted projects. Um, I think that's kind of interesting, especially because he's moved to, he's moved from Libra to a, um, I'm not even sure, like I said, I didn't look into the licensing of Pideo, but 
at very least moving to something that um, is more business focused. So I thought that was just kind of interesting. That is. That's very cool. Well, I really appreciate you writing in. I'm interested to hear what people's thoughts are. If you have experience with Pideo, let us know at live at asknoahshow.com. I'll definitely be checking it out. I'm always interested in looking at competitors. I'm also very slow moving, right? And so for me, it's one of those things where I set up C file. I don't know. It must be going on six, seven years now. And we use it every single day. In fact, my all of my work files are just an encrypted C file database or an encrypted C file library. So when I restore my laptop, one of the steps is log into C file, click sync, go to bed. And the next morning I walk up, everything just shows back up. Um, so, and the, and, 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 and next cloud, what I would say there is next cloud, there are some massive deployments of next cloud, right? So if you're having trouble with those, those pieces of software, I would, I would first, I'm with Steve, let's find out why those aren't working. And, but then at the end, if Pideo is a better tool for the job, then hundred percent, I'm all on board. Our third email comes in from Michael. Michael writes in and says, Hi, Noah, this is Michael. We spoke Sunday morning at Southeast Linux Fest. You just picked up a PCI Express capture card, but you couldn't find the name or link for it. I mentioned that I would email you, but I wasn't sure if there was a better email address. One other question. You mentioned Libvirt as an option instead of Proxmox. I was planning to run the hypervisor on bare metal and was hoping to run some Docker or maybe even some LXC or LXD containers. From all I see, Libvirt is just the API. So you're saying that install a distro, install cockpit and Libvirt D and run my VMs on top of the distro. Thanks again for being so generous with the information. It's been very helpful, Michael. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll work backwards. I'll, I'll take the um, uh, capture part of this and then we can, Steve can, can chime in uh, with the, virtualization. So the issue when it comes to capture is scalability. So if all you want to do is wiggle a camera on a stick, then you can plug into, you can plug into a USB port and it will be just fine and that will work. And you can just ask the millions and millions of people that do web conferences every day that plugging 1080p or 4k cameras into a capture device one and running it will work. No problem. Don't disagree with that. Where it becomes problematic is when you want to scale. When you want to start taking in multiple sources, you have to get... Uh, Steve, did you ever see the Magic School Bus, the show? Or is that before your time? Oh, well, or it after was... Time. After your time. I, it's after my time, but uh, my kids have seen a couple episodes here and there. So the Magic School Bus... If you're when you're when you're talking about capture, really when you're talking about heavy data transfer of any kind, you need to get onto the PCI bus. I'm going to call it the magic PCI bus for for the remainder of this explanation. And so the idea here is that you have to be able to fit all of the video that you want to place onto the bus. So, Steve, how does a PCI bus work or how if I if I had no concept of what a PCI bus is, how would you explain it to somebody? Well, essentially, I would say that it's very similar to having a highway and PCI buses have a number of lanes and they're actually called lanes. And so you can think of that in the same way as a highway. Of course, this is over a simplistic way of doing it, but usually the USB bus is all tied to a single, a single lane. And that means that even if you've got 10 ports, it's like trying to shove 10 cars down a single lane highway or a single lane road. You can do it. You absolutely can. But if you're trying to go maximum speed and max out the, the bandwidth on all the cars, so unless they're all the exact same model of car, and even then the analogy kind of breaks down, the ability for all of the vehicles to move at the same speed at a reasonable speed uh, decreases significantly. So ideally what you do is you expand the number of lanes and at least at current, there's no way for people to do that with a, with the USB ports they have. There's no software hack that will change this. This is the way that the hardware is built. So your options at the end of the day are to either get an additional PCI card that has USB ports. If you like, if you're really, okay, then you need to make sure that you're, using PCI, different PCI lanes for each USB card. And that means additional hardware just to make sure that your USB devices continue to work. So I have linked for you in the show notes a couple of things. I have linked for you a quad bus USB card. So that is going to 
uh, follow the logic that Steve put forth for you, it gives you a separate USB bus for every single USB port, meaning that each one of those USB buses are going to be placed on a separate individual PCI lane. So that will get you there. However, comma, by the time you're done with the quad bus USB card, that's a hundred bucks. Then you got to buy even the cheapest HDMI capture card is the Elgato uh, capture. And it is like $100, but it's locks to 60 frames per second, which now means that you have to have a camera that will only put out 60 frames per second. You can't do 29.97, you can't do 30, you can't do 24. You have to do 60 frames per second. And if you want to buy a nicer capture card like a Magwell, you're going to spend upwards of like $300 to buy a Magwell HDMI card. Additionally, HDMI was explicitly designed for consumer stuff. So they have all sorts of copy protection built into HDMI because they expect it to connect DVD players or Blu-ray players to televisions. And it's not really meant for professional production. The other thing is you run into a distance limitation pretty quick. And oh, by the way, because there's all those little pins, that means you're only buying molded cables. So there's all the reason in the world if you're trying to do this with any sort of professionalism to stay away from HDMI and stay away from consumer grade capture. Again, depending on what your goals are, if you're just going to set a static camera up and you're just going to stare it into it in a little oblivion like a glorified web conference, fine, knock yourself out. But that that system doesn't scale, so you should know that getting into it. So the conversation I had with Michael itself presupposes that you have all of that knowledge. So now that you're kind of caught up to where we we left out or where we where we're talking itself, he asked me, he said, what do you recommend for an SDI capture? SDI is HDMI without all the consumer grade crud. So the broadcasting industry threw an ever loving fit to when HDMI came out and they're like, hold on a second. You want to have this digital encoding decoding, but you want it to have copy protection and all of these layers and you want it to have to negotiate and you want it to automatically block in case it tries to make two or more jumps and you want us to buy the cables that are only, none of this is going to work. And so the the industry went, well, what do you want? They went, we want a plain digital signal in a cheap cable that can be field replaceable with ends. Oh, and by the way, make those ends sturdy because people are going to knock cameras over and trip over them and all the rest of it. And the answer, SDI. So SDI is fed with RG6 quad shielded coax cable. So it's like, you know, 10 cents a foot, 15 cents a foot. Then you buy little BNC ends, which you which you can place on there. You can strip them in about five seconds. You can strip coax cables, center conductor in the the outside insulation. You throw a BNC connector on her and you crimp it. And there you go. Now you have an SDI cable. Oh, you want to run a camera 300 feet? No problem, boss. Run a 300 foot run of RG6. Put a couple of ends on it. Make sure to coil that bad boy over under and you're set. And every professional camera is going to come with an SDI output. So if you really want to take your broadcasting to the next level, that's what you do. You buy a PCI capture card. Now, the go-to PCI capture card out there in the industry is Blackmagic. And they make the Decklink Duo and the Decklink Quad. And I think they even make an 8 one. It's fine, but Decklink does not primarily target Linux. They have drivers, but it's like this random deb that you install. And then you're just hopefully it's going to keep working. And I absolutely remember a time in like 1204, 1304, or 1404, and you're looking and they're like, yeah, Blackmagic still supports like 804 or something. And I mean, they were just like, oh, they were years behind. And it has always made me nervous. And if you don't have that special uh, Blackmagic utility, it doesn't work. So I've been on the hunt for the best experience for SDI capture with Linux. And this is where the conversation that Michael and I were having at uh, at Southeast Linux Fest. And what I came across was this uh, straight from China, Chinesium, uh, made out of Chinesium, unbelievably cheap stuff, uh, SDI capture card. And... I purchased it, and wouldn't you know it, it works flawlessly in Linux. Um, It comes with a driver, and the driver admittedly is a little sketch to install insofar as it's a bash uh, script that compiles uh, a kernel module on, so far as I can tell, on the the system. And I, I can see about getting a copy of the driver. We can maybe make it available somewhere. If somebody can go through and tell me exactly what that thing is doing, all the better. But what I can tell you is I bought a, a quad uh, a quad P- SDI PCI-based capture card for $239, which is substantially less expensive than the Blackmagic one and is, and so far as I can tell, works on every Linux distro because it just executes that bash script. And then it works flawlessly in OBS, and each SDI input just shows up as a separate input. And because it's SDI, you can use inexpensive cables, you don't have to deal with any copy protection, and you're going to get a crystal clean solid signal, and when somebody trips over the cable, you just put a new end on it. So that's the good news. The bad news is if you're feeding anything, if you want to feed anything consumer grade into your 
professional SDI capture system that you just built, you're going to have to use a, uh, a device to convert it. My favorite device for that is the decimator. My favorite device for that is the decimator because it does everything. So it can do one of two things very, very well. First thing it does, it generates the absolute perfect HDMI signal. So I've absolutely had it to where, for whatever reason, we are going to use HDMI capture because the person wants to do it or because the event wants to do it or because it's all there's available. And in that scenario, the trick is figure out what, so for example, the cam link wants 1080p 60 frames per second. That's what you feed it. Um, fine, I can do that. But what happens if somebody brings me a laptop and goes, well, no, I want to plug this and get this on the air and it has a different frame rate or a different resolution and I don't really know. I think my laptop tops out at like 1,000 by 800 by 600, and, but it's good enough for me and I can see better that way. Okay, got it. Thank you. And I take it and I plug it into the decimator and what the decimator does is it will scale it up and make a perfect 1080p 60 frame per second signal and send it out to the cam link. And then the cam link is happy as a clam. The second thing you can do is go the other direction. You can take an HDMI signal that is all over the place and you convert it to a crystal clean SDI signal and feed it into your brand new capture system that we just built. So either way, oh, oh by the way, I can do both of those things at one time. So highly recommend having PCI capture or well, in order, you have to have PCI capture if you want any scalability plus a little webcam on a stick. Once you have PCI capture, whether you do it through USB or SDI, I've given you ways to do both and get them on the SDI or on the PCI bus. But if you're going to use, uh, if you're going to use SDI, then you're going to want a way to bring HDMI or consumer level sources in because you're almost certainly going to come up against that. And if you're going to broadcast off of a laptop, then you need an external PCI enclosure so that you can place the PCI cards in so that you can access your laptop's PCI bus because running it through the USB port is a terrible idea. Anything to add to that, Steve? Nope. I barely was able to follow all that. Okay. Well, I told, I asked my, I asked my wife before I left the house, I said, what do you understand about PCI capture cards? And she said something along the lines of, um, I know it's related to video and I know that you demand it before you're willing to go do broadcast engineering, that it has to be an SDI feed. And I went, okay, well, we'll see what, we'll see what you understand when I come home. So she's going to be my litmus test of if I was able to explain that well enough. But that was that's your answer, Michael, and I'll have a link for you in the show notes. So for Michael's second question, so he came up and he said, hey, what do you think about running Proxmox? And I said, Proxmox is a great open source virtualizer. And if you want to go with that virtualization system, that's a fantastic idea. The only thing I would say against Proxmox is one is they're a little funny about updates insofar as they make you manually configure where to pull updates down unless you're paying them. And the second thing is if you need the ability to run multiple, you need to be the ability to slide hosts around. Proxmox is your is your is your is your gem because you can have multiple hosts and then you can move them around and back them up and do snapshotting and all the rest of it. It's great. If you're just going to run all your VMs on a single piece of hardware. I recommended Libvirt. And and so just to kind of refresh everyone's memory, so he said, um, I was planning on running it on the bare metal and he wants to do some containerization, but he said, as far as I can see, Libvirt is just the API. So you're staying install a distro, install cockpit and Libvirt D and then run the VMs on top of the distro. That's exactly what I'm suggesting. And Steve, you probably have more experience. Well, we probably have equal experience in this realm, I would suppose. What... Um, what is the lib, libvert D stack or the libvert stack? Well, it's essentially interfacing with the with the kernel. So the the writer has it correct in terms of you have to install a distro because it doesn't it currently does not stand on its own. To my knowledge, there aren't any actual distributions that all it is is like it spins up and has libvert and that's it. Right. Um, so even even RHEL's stuff, like even Red Hat's virtualization stuff, is on top of Red Hat and then packages on top of that. So essentially, that's correct. There's it's a bunch of API and related calls that that talk to the kernel to do all of the stuff that you need it to do. They do make it a checkbox. It's not pre-installed, but you can, like when you're going through Omar Red Hat, you can say, I want this to be a virtualization host and it will go out and pull all the packages. But yeah, 100%. you're Yeah, but you're, you're right. You you could put it on, you could put it on Omar Red Hat. You could put it on Ubuntu. Um, but that that is what I would do with IRU, unless you want to slide VMs around. Then I would look at Proxmox, but I would also probably look at Overt and see which one of those I liked. Probably make that decision maybe based off of, depending or not, if... How would we decide? But well, if you're using shared storage or not, if you're if you're if you're going to use shared storage and you're going to have multiple hosts, then I would go over it. If you're going to have local storage, 
um, I would go with Proxmox. But again, I guess without if you don't have shared storage, that means you probably don't have multiple hosts. And if you don't have multiple hosts, is there an advantage to Proxmox alone? Um, well, it gives you a nice UI. I know that Cockpit's getting there, but in terms of um, trying to troubleshoot something, right? If you're going mm -hmm. to community support, you'll be able to hit on your problem better with uh, Proxmox on top of the fact that it comes built in with the ability to do ZFS if that's your thing. Like mm. it does give you it does give you some ability to tinker under hood. So, I mean, I, I personally run KVM um, or libvirt stack, but I can see why someone would want to do Proxmox. You run Ubuntu on your host, right? I do. Um, most of my hosts, so most of my VMs run uh, like a RHEL derivative or RHEL itself, but but the hosts themselves almost exclusively run Ubuntu, um, and that's because of the ZFS support. Yeah, so you could do you could do Ubuntu, you could do ZFS underneath, and then you could run libvirt, and then you could essentially have the same snapshotting capability that you'd have on Proxmox. Which is essentially what I do as well, because um, I don't use my NAS for the shared storage for the actual VM images. Right? Okay. So the Im the inventory or like the uh, hard drive data inside the VMs is absolutely stored on the NAS. Mm -hmm. But that NAS has to serve the entire house and it wasn't built out with fiber or anything like that. So it is not serving the VM images because it's just not up to the task to do all of that sort of stuff. So the images themselves reside on NVMEs inside of the KVM hosts. Makes them lightning fast. Yep. Okay, let's talk about his container thing. So he wants to host a bunch of containers. So the, so what are what if any are the gotchas of hosting containers on VMs? Um, well, inside of a VM, there isn't really anything. All that all that the container is doing is using built-in facilities that that ship with literally every Linux distribution. So specifically namespaces and, and C groups. And uh, we won't get into the specifics of that, but essentially all that that's doing is allowing the kernel to manage access to various bits of your hardware. So there's no downside to doing it inside of a VM pretty much at all, uh, because eventually what will happen is whether you're running containers on bare metal or inside of a VM, eventually you're going to hit the IO threshold for whatever host the, the containers are sitting on. So mm. there isn't really going to be a substantial difference. It's not like it's not like nested virtualization where it's trying to virtualize inside of a virtual inside of a virtual, right? Mm -hmm. um, that has absolutely big penalties the more nested you get. But with containers, uh, a container on top of a VM or a container on top of hardware, unless you're actually accessing the hardware from the container, so like trying to pass your graphics card through mm -hmm. or your network card specifically like if you're trying to do something advanced like that then yeah don't do that inside of a container it makes your life more difficult or sorry inside of a vm what do you run into more in the field do you run into vm hosts that are ho running on bare metal or vm hosts that are running on container in um, vms so vms are by far and away the uh the largest contingent of container hosts part of that is because um what I work with is able to scale out. So OpenShift can scale itself out and add more nodes kind of automatically and dynamically. And that's really hard if you've got bare metal. Absolutely. So hopefully that answers your question. If not, right back in live at asknoahshow.com. We'd, uh, we'd love to work with you further on it, but hopefully that gives you a place to get started both with your virtualization and your streaming. Uh, Tiny writes in from the Geek Lab. You can learn more at geeklab.ninja or chat.asknoahshow.com. They go to the same place. Tiny writes in and says the following. I was wondering if there's been an update to the AltaSpeed data center adventure. I heard you mention something about it on Linux Unplugged, and I would like to hear more details. Also, nice meeting you itself. Same, Tiny. It was great to catch up in person. So the so anybody that's been paying attention to the IT industry has figured out that people want to move towards services. And I struggled with that early on because it's just it's, it's the antithesis of like, I just don't do cloud, right? I'm the guy that just doesn't do cloud. And I'm also the person that if I don't put it in my house, I'm not going to put it into your business. Much to my wife's, wife's dismay, there everything that we install at AltaSpeed Technologies at one time or another has run into my house. Even stuff that doesn't really belong in my house runs in my house because if it drives me nuts, I'm not installing it for you. And so as part of that, the world is asking for cloud services and AltaSpeed has had to evolve to understand how to meet those needs. 
And so what we've done is we've started to roll out cloud services that you can self-host. So by default, we host them for you. We take care of it. We set it up. You just pay us a monthly fee and we provide the thing to you and then you can use the thing. And as long as you want to do that, then we are, we are as competitive, not in some cases more competitive than whatever the big name alternatives are. When the day comes that you say, hey, I want all of my stuff. I thought you were about data ownership. I thought you were about owning your own data and leveraging technology to its full potential to benefit me, not line your own pockets. And here you are sucking all of the stuff up and putting it in your data center. I can look at you and say, here's all of your stuff. Take it. Be happy. Or here's all of your stuff. Here's the server that you need to purchase. And I will come set it down for you wherever you would like me to land it. And we're going to parachute from the cloud down to the ground. And I will help you do that. And that is a cloud model that I can sleep with myself at night with. So we've started down that process. And at first, the first iteration, one was like, can we do this? Does this business model work? Will people pay us to do what they could be paying big names to do? I'm not even sure that we can be competitive in that market. And I learned in a hurry that, yes, people are willing to do that. Way more people than I thought are willing to do that. Okay, check that box. But now we have this massive infrastructure running on all of these rented VPSs and it's costing us an arm and a leg. And so we started to look, what does it take to put all of this stuff into our own data center? So we tried with the matrix server. That is by far in a, in a way the single biggest cost because it just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And we have to store all of this data and it just costs buku's amount of money. So wanted to get that off of DigitalOcean. And so it has served as a nice little test point of, hey, here's a here's a resource that a lot of people hit, like way more people hit that than any one of our other resources combined. So can we effectively move that from where it sits on the cloud hosted provider to our own data center? So we tried and we failed miserably. But we learned from the experience and I got with Steve and I said, hey, Steve, I did 30 seconds of Googling and I found out if I buy these nine things and plug them in, that should work, right? And Steve's like, ah. No, you have to look at what you're, you have to collect information about what you're trying to do. And then you have to purchase hardware based on what you're trying and walk me through the entire process. And so we did that and lo and behold, learned a whole bunch about here's what it would take to adequately transition from a cloud hosted stuff into a self hosted thing inside of a data center. So that box as of today, it has been built, it has been running and has been, we've been using it in a cold running state in uh, in the UltraSpeed lab here in Grand Forks. And we're testing it up and running it and throwing stuff at it and trying to break it. And so far, we've had absolutely no problems. And we've gotten down to the confidence point where we've scheduled a date to go rack it in the data center. And that date is the second week of July. So uh, myself, our chief engineer, and our lead installer will all be down in the uh, in our data center and we'll be racking that server. And then from there, we're going to spend the first few days working out of the data center, doing our day jobs. But that way, if something goes wrong, we can immediately step in and take over. And then at, towards the end of the week, two of us will depart. Our engineer will probably stay there for a little bit and just kind of keep his eyes on everything just to make sure that everything lands fine. And then we'll start sliding stuff off of the public internet onto our own stack. But um, we, we, we used PyKVM to get remote access to the servers. We've got a we have two uh, primary virtual host, backup virtual host, and a, uh, and, a, and a storage server. We're using Ubuntu underneath, and then we're running ZFS for the data set. Backs up to three places, kicks the third backup back here to Grand Forks. That's on a dedicated box. Um, and then all of the VMs use central storage on the, the file server, all connected with, uh, with, uh, with 10 gig uh, backplane. So... We are fairly confident that this is going to go well, but I will know more the second week of July. How's that for the uh, for an update on the data center, Steve? So I wanted to ask you about the Pi KVM. Stuff. Yeah. Um, are you using it for remote power, like turning a machine yes. on and off? Yes. How are you doing that? They have uh, a way to plug into. I I want to it's I want to say it goes onto the motherboard somewhere. I'd have to ask Peter to be sure. But um, but yeah, there is a way to, to toggle the power. I had seen that, but I was trying to... So I I didn't want to have the Pi KVM inside the host. Mm -hmm. And then I, I didn't want to have cables that are attached to the motherboard dangling outside of the host. So I was kind of curious how that is working. Yeah, I guess I'm not 100% sure. I just know that it had that capability and we I know that we enabled it. So and it's funny. So a little side tangent with the Pi KVM. So you cannot buy a Pi KVM right now. And so we were we looked at kind of building it, but it's kind of nice when you buy it because it comes in the little enclosure and all the rest of it. So there is a so there's a company that is basically a cheap Chinese company that makes Chinese knockoffs of the Pi KVM called Bly KVM. 
And it is such a Chinese knockoff that they didn't even bother to strip out the Pi KVM branding and the OS image that they, they flash it with. But you can buy them off of eBay and um, yeah, they come in red, they're orange and black. And so we ordered a couple of orange Bly KVMs and connected them to the, to all of the, the servers. And that's how we're going to do auto band management. You know, hopefully we never have to do that, right? Hopefully we just SSH in and everything happens over a terminal. But when the bad day comes, we want to plan for out of band management because driving five hours to the data center sucks. And also waiting on remote hands to answer the call um, is uh, like sitting on pins and needles. So why did you go with IK or why didn't you go with something like um, are they Dells? They are Dells. So why didn't you use the DRAC that's built into? Have them? you used iDRAC? I mean, in terms of turning things on and off, it should be sufficient. Um, it's been it's been eons since I've used uh, a DRAC. I I assume that they were competent, like comparable to the ILO, which I actually find the remote management on the ILO pretty good. Yeah, so that's, it's a good question. I, I would say there's a couple things that played into it. So one is they're not brand new Dell servers, so it doesn't have the latest and greatest iDRAC. Um, and at least on the storage server, the iDRAC that was there had it was one of those things that required some Java window that you had to be able to, to access, which wasn't was less than ideal to, to say the least. But I would say the biggest driving factor, really beyond all that, because we probably could have worked along all, around all of that. And like you said, if it's just turning it on and off, doesn't really matter. But I have this dream of being able to have the ability to just plug in remote hands anywhere. And so if we were going to get into a remote KVM, we've played with the Spider before, which was okay. But again, at the time it used the Java console. I understand their new one doesn't, but it's like six, $700 or some stupid thing. The Bly KVM, it's affordable. It's based off of an open source project. We can build them if we absolutely have to. We can buy pre-done kits, which is really nice because it's a product that we can sell. And it has a fixed price point associated with it. So the idea kind of was, if we do this, not only does it work in this situation, in theory, it work, we can put them anywhere and get point of presence anywhere we need it. Just, hey, plug this USB cable in and plug this HDMI cable in and wait. Yeah, you sold me. It makes sense when you're looking at the bigger view like that. Yeah, so I and I, so far I've been really impressed with Pi KVM. I was a little concerned, right? Because I was like, Here's the thing. There's a reason companies like Spider are in business. You know, with the, the enterprise, they're not, they're not, they're not shoestringing Raspberry Pis to get access to their servers. But the reality is, like, the more I look around, the more you see Raspberry Pis in production, and the more I see them in production, and the, like my Volumia box, this stupid thing was like an extra Pi I had laying around, and I just on a whim flashed it with Volumia and thought, oh, that'll be cool. I can play music and plugged it in, and like six years later, the Pi Generation One Pi has never once gone down. It just sits there and plays my music. It's fantastic. I love it. A home assistant, same thing. It's running on a Pi 3 or Pi 4 or something like that. Plugged it in. Totally forgot about it. Just works. So I'm I'm, I'm sort of of the opinion that sometimes good enough is good enough. And the experience at Pi KVM, mm, fantastic. Yeah, I use one. So I have, a, I have a computer back in Canada at my in-law's place. And it's attached to Pi KVM. But... For remote uh, power on and off, I actually attached it to a smart plug because, like I said, I didn't want to have cables dangling out of the case. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, that'd be a good way to go, too, especially for just restarting. Part of it is, so we have our, the data center that we're working with is Databank. And the thing that I've been really impressed about Databank is they have uh, data center techs on call, like, all hours, every hour. So I've never waited more than like five minutes for a tech to put his hands on the server and they don't charge extra for remote hands. So when I need somebody to go look at it or bounce a box, I've, I've typically just requested their remote hands and it's been good enough. So I haven't really worried about having to restart servers, but this will give us the opportunity to do that because of course, if you can manage it yourself, why wouldn't you want to? Yeah, fingers crossed that it continues to work as advertised. So hopefully that answers your question, Tiny. If it doesn't, write in live at asknoahshow.com. I, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on this, Steve, but I, I just wanted to call this out. So um, there is a, uh, a, 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 um, a, a clipboard, a contextual aware clipboard menu, and it's uh, called FlyPi 10. Tell me about FlyPi 10. So I, I stumbled across this because at Self, we were watching a presentation and there's a guy who was doing a presentation on um, Graffini OS. Graffini, thank you. And he had what looked like Compass. And I was like, you know what? I haven't been able to get Compass working on GNOME 40, 41, 42, whatever. And so I wondered what that was. So I went back and I was like, hey, Noah, do you know what this is? He's like, I have no idea. I use KDE. Um, so I went digging around and anyways, I found out that he's using a, he was using a plugin called Burn My Windows. And from that, I went to see what the author 
did on top of that. And I came across this Fly Pi 10 and it's more than just a like a, a clipboard manager. It's actually a, con a contextual menu. So like a, what you can do is um, if you, you picture what's on a phone, when you long press on a phone, oftentimes another menu pops up and then you can interact with it. And the the there's a video that we'll link in the show notes for you for the YouTube demonstration. But essentially, um, it allows you to do things like um, switch your desktop or launch your favorite applications or those sorts of things. But on top of that, I really like the clipboard for pictures. So what what happens is you can you can copy three or four uh, images to your clipboard and then from the contextual menu, tell it which one of those images you want to paste. And it's just basically it's very uh, mouse centric. And I, I like that quite a bit. And I could see using this on touchscreen at one point. The uh, I don't know if it's the author himself, but someone gets up in front of a giant touchscreen is actually showing like doing it in front of you. And I think it's really worth checking out if it's something that um, might interest you. And just as a final note, the Burn My Windows is also mm -hmm. available for KWIN. It just doesn't have as many effects. So if you are a KDE user, you're not out in the cold. We, we were talking about this. We might even use this outside of touchscreens, right? Yeah, I I really like this FlyPy. Um, I thought... I thought that the clipboard manager and and some of the at first I was like ah, I don't know if I'd use it outside of it but then when I saw being able to launch an app like basically you can make the contextual menu have whatever you want in it as far as I understand and so mm -hmm. having easy access to my my applications like that right now I I still hit the super key and then just type to get my application and hit enter and that's super useful but I also found it uh compelling to have it just wherever my mouse is just i don't know if it's right click or center click but bring up the contextual menu and then just grab the application you're looking for so you can check it out uh we'll have like steve said we'll have it linked for you in the show notes podcast at asknoahshow.com fly pie 10 a new clipboard menu proper touchscreen support and more check it out um lastly uh uh this is really what i meant to say that i wasn't want to spend a lot of time on i just wanted to touch on it um the standards for EVs. So essentially up until a month ago, the electric vehicle standard landscape was pretty settled and everybody had kind of standard on CCS1. But just recently, Ford and General Motors have all upended that by signing deals to adopt their EVs to use the Tesla supercharger known as the North American Charging Standard. So already EVs are barely upon us and we already have a couple of them out. In 30 seconds or less, Steve, what are your thoughts on competing uh, EV charging standards. XKCD comic. <laughs> we have, there are two competing standards. Let's make one standard to rule them all. There are now three competing standards. Yeah. Uh, although I think honestly, um, from my limited understanding, this is probably not a bad move from the standpoint of the um, what was out there, whatever the American standard was out CCS there. One. Was, yeah, thank you. It was pretty terrible uh, in terms of user experience. And so Tesla... I think this is good for Tesla and I think they have a better they have a better interface from my understanding. So to see the better interface kind of win out would be nice. Absolutely. All right, the music in our ears we, means we're out of time. Thank you for joining us. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens the show at Ask Noah Show. We're back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at uh, live at or asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.